police officer charged with manslaughter and murder in the death of George Floyd. On Wall Street, stock futures are mixed. Right now, Dow futures are down 26 points. NASDAQ futures 43 points higher. This is SRN News. W262CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. resurrection of Christ is more than a doctrine to be believed. It is a truth that affects the way you and I live. And the Corinthians had not thought this through, and some of us have not thought this through as well. Now, you may already believe in the resurrection. I I would assume that most of you do believe in the resurrection, and I don't have to convince you of it. But what I want to convince you of this morning is what Paul wanted to convince the Corinthians of, and that is the resurrection affects your life today. I've never been able to verify this story, but it sure makes a powerful illustration of popular attitudes towards Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It concerns a mountain in the Italian Alps. Every year, thousands of people climb that mountain, passing the Stations of the Cross, to stand at an outdoor crucifix. According to the story, one tourist noticed a little trail that led beyond the cross. He fought through the rough thicket and, to his surprise, came upon another shrine, a shrine that symbolized the empty tomb. It was neglected. The brush had grown up around it. Almost everyone had gone as far as the cross, but there they had stopped. Far too many people have gotten to the cross and have known the despair and the heartbreak. Far too few have moved beyond the cross to find the real message of Easter. Welcome to Verse by Verse and a special three-part Easter message by our Bible teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. For over 30 years, Pastor Steve has been the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. And that ministry has expanded to include these daily broadcasts. Easter will soon be here, and most of us have at least a general idea that the resurrection of Jesus has a huge impact on the future of his followers. It sets the stage for his return. It reinforces the promise that we too will rise from the dead. And it provides a foretaste of heaven for the believer. But right now, today in our daily lives, how does the resurrection affect you and me? Here's Pastor Steve to help us answer that question. Someone once asked John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, how he was doing. Now, that's a simple question. People ask that all the time. How's it going? How you doing? But John Quincy Adams didn't answer it in a very simple and common way. Here's his response. Unique, very biblical. To that question, how are you? Here's what Mr. Adams said. He said, John Quincy Adams is well, sir, very well. The house in which he has been living is dilapidated and old, And he has received word from its maker that he must vacate soon. But John Quincy Adams is well, sir, very well. Now, Mr. Adams wasn't referring to a house made of stone, a house made of brick. He's referring to a house of his body. That's what he's talking about. And that's really very, very biblical because Scripture says that our outer man is decaying. Our outer man is this body. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building, he said, from God. 
a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. He's talking about the fact that someday we're going to die. And when this body dies, we have another house that God has prepared for us. It's called the resurrected body. That new building is the new body that we will get at the resurrection. For scripture teaches that when a believer dies, he goes immediately in his soul and spirit to be with Christ. Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But our body goes into the earth, awaiting the day that it will be transformed and changed and given a new body. And with that new body, we will be reunited with our soul and spirit. And Paul said, thus we shall always be with the Lord. Resurrection always speaks of the body. And the hope of the resurrection is what gives us great encouragement. So we see our bodies growing older, death getting closer and closer. It gives us that hope, that confidence that we will have a new body someday. Now today is the day that we focus on the great truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus conquered death, rose from the dead. And he promised that if he rose, that all who believe in him will rise too. He said in John eleven twenty five, 25, said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Now, many people, when they think of the resurrection, even Christians, that's all they think about. They think about the future. They think that someday they will be with Christ, and uh, that it's all about later on, it's futuristic. They never consider the implications of the resurrection for today. But the Apostle Paul did, and we need to as well, because in the days of the New Testament, there was a church, an entire church made up of, of people who denied the resurrection, and that church is the church at Corinth. I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, let me give you a background. The Corinthians had problems in all areas, all areas. The theme of 1 Corinthians is correction. In every single chapter leading up to 15, Paul corrects the Corinthians about their behavior, about their attitude. They are not the church that you want to emulate. They are not the church that you want to follow. They had problems in every single area that Paul addresses. However, for the most part, theologically, they were sound. They, they were not sound in how they were uh, applying the truth and living out the truth, but they were sound in their doctrine until Paul comes to 1 Corinthians 15. And then he has to deal with them rather severely about a problem of heresy in their church concerning the resurrection of the dead. They denied a bodily resurrection. Why? Because the Corinthians were very Greek, and the Greek philosophers of that day and the culture of that day denied a bodily resurrection. They, they said, the culture of that day, the Greek philosophers said that at death, the soul is absorbed back into the divine being. What, whatever that means, I have no idea. But the soul is absorbed back to the divine being and the body then is never resurrected. You just sort of float throughout eternity as some nebulous spirit associated, embraced by the divine being. Now, 
that was the belief of the day, and Greek philosophers actually mocked the resurrection. You'll recall in Acts chapter 17 when the Apostle Paul is in Athens, he's on a place called Mars Hill, and he is preaching Jesus, and they listened to him until he spoke about the resurrection. Then they, they some sneered. They said, what does this chicken babbler, that's how it literally reads, what does this chicken babbler have to, have to say? They mocked the thought of the resurrection. It was just laughable to them. So now you have a whole church made up of people who said they believed the gospel, but they are also denying the resurrection because the culture has influenced the church. And here's where Paul is going in chapter 15. He opens up the chapter by telling them that the gospel is of first importance. And the gospel, he says, starting in verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The gospel is the most important thing that we believe and preach. That's what Paul said, as first importance. This is the priority. He said, and here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It doesn't stop there. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then the apostle Paul, up until verse 11, proves that Christ has risen from the dead in a body by saying that there were many appearances. Believers saw him. Jesus gave appearances in his body, thus proving that he's raised from the dead. Having established that, Paul then speaks of the theological consequences of denying the resurrection. These people hadn't thought this thing through. Paul very logically takes them through a doctrinal issue. Notice what he says in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, and he has been preached, and he has been raised from the dead, he's saying, if Christ is preached that he is raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. He said, it doesn't make sense. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised from the dead. If you deny the resurrection of the dead, you have to deny Christ's resurrection from the dead. And that's an essential part of the gospel. It's what you said you believed. Notice verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Why is their faith vain? Who cares about believing in a dead Savior? It's no different than believing in Buddha. It's no different than believing in any religious leader who hasn't risen from the dead. Who cares? Your faith is in vain. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then you didn't die for our sins. He goes on, verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. He said, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're liars. We've been telling people he has. We're actually enemies of God then. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. You have no savior. The resurrection proves that God the Father accepted the death of Christ. That's a big theological word, propitiation, which means that the justice and wrath of God is satisfied in Christ's death, totally satisfied. And God can pardon us because Christ became sin for us in dying on the cross. So Paul starts off saying Christ's death and resurrection, it's certain. He appeared to people. We saw at one time 500 people 
then if you deny it, there are some serious theological consequences. Then starting in verse 20, going on to verse 28, he speaks about there's a plan. There's a plan. The resurrection is a plan. It doesn't all happen at once. There are phases. So he starts in verse 20 by saying, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, meaning Christ is the first, then we who believe will come later. And he, and he teaches that until verse 28. But when he comes to verse 29, and this is the passage we want to look at, verses 29 through 34, he speaks about not the theological implications, but the very practical implications of the resurrection. Paul says that the resurrection of Christ is more than a doctrine to be believed. It is a truth that affects the way you and I live. And the Corinthians had not thought this through, and some of us have not thought this through as well. Now, you may already believe in the resurrection. I, I would assume that most of you do believe in the resurrection, and I don't have to convince you of it. But what I want to convince you of this morning is what Paul wanted to convince the Corinthians of, and that is the resurrection affects your life today. Yes, it affects the future, but it affects the way you live now. So this morning, following Paul's reasoning, we want to see three areas of our lives that are affected by the resurrection and the practical implications of this great truth. Number one, Paul says that the first area of our lives that is affected by the resurrection is conversion. Talking about the conversion of others. Notice verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? This is one of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament to interpret. I read once that there are over 200 interpretations of this one verse. I think that's a stretch personally, but... I think there are probably about 30 or 40 different interpretations of this verse. I told a friend this week who couldn't be here Sunday, he said, what are you preaching on? I said, uh, baptism for the dead. And I got this buckwheat look. Remember buckwheat? The eyes go big and uh, gave me this buckwheat look. And I said, yes, I'm, I'm going to speak on that. What, what is this verse talking about? Um, you know what? The Corinthians knew what Paul meant. The Corinthians knew. We wish that Paul had elaborated on this for us. I'm going to tell you what I believe Paul is talking about here. The Corinthians knew. Someone said it is locked into historical obscurity. But I'll tell you this. We do know for sure what he wasn't talking about. He was not talking about the Mormon doctrine of proxy baptism. What is that? The Mormons believe in what they call proxy baptism or vicarious baptism, which they, in which a living person is baptized on behalf and in the place of a dead person. Usually it's a relative. That's why the Mormons are very strong about keeping genealogical records. Now, why do they do this? Because they believe that proxy baptism saves somebody. They believe that baptism is a required ordinance to enter the kingdom of God. And so being very concerned about others, and especially their dead relatives who were not Mormons, uh, they take a living person and baptize him in the place of a dead person. As I said, they call this vicarious baptism, baptism in the place of someone else. And they base this practice, for the most part, on 1 Corinthians 15 
verse 29. Now, and you know what? At first glance, this does appear to be what Paul is teaching, but it can't be. And I'll tell you why. And the reason I'm going to go through this is because I realize my role as a pastor is not simply to teach you the truth, but to teach you to think biblically at how we arrive at conclusions. So follow me here. Why do we know for certain this can't possibly be what what Paul means? First of all, because of a simple principle of Bible interpretation says that you never build an entire doctrine out of one unclear, obscure verse when you have many other texts that say just the opposite. You don't, you don't do that. That's just common sense. Why would you take an obscure, hard-to-interpret text, which is not spoken of anywhere else in Scripture, and build an entire doctrine on it? That's number one. It's just faulty, what we call hermeneutics, which is the art and science of Bible interpretation. Secondly, and more importantly, is this. We know that this can't be teaching proxy baptism, baptism by salvation, or salvation being baptized, because no one gets saved by being baptized, being baptized, whether you are living or dead. Nobody gets saved by that. And let me, let me just show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 1. And let me show you something that is very important. There are still people in our day and age, in churches, in our own community, who teach that you still, you have to be baptized to be saved. But let me show you what, what the Word of God says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you understand that because the Corinthians had so embraced their Greek culture with all the philosophers, they then, who became believers, looked at some of their Bible teachers and looked at them as they had looked at their Greek teachers, their philosophical teachers. They had a hero worship and Paul is, is dealing with that in 1 Corinthians and has to keep saying, you know what, I'm just a servant. I'm, I'm just a servant. Uh, do not exalt me. Do not lift me up. I'm just a slave of Christ, that's all. And he says in chapter 1, starting at verse 12, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. It's one thing to appreciate your spiritual leaders. It's another thing to put them on a pedestal and worship them. And that's what Paul is addressing. They branched off in these little factions, and some said, hey, I'm, I'm in Paul's camp. I think he's the greatest. Others said, I think Peter is. That's the, uh, the word Cephas. That's the Aramaic word for Peter. Others said, I'm of Apollos. And then those who said, well, we don't really deal with any men. We're the more spiritual ones. We're just of Christ. Men are, are not even in our equation. Now, notice how Paul addresses this. He says, has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He said, I thank God, speaking of baptism, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Now, why would Paul say that? Paul is saying, I don't want people in your church to say, oh, who are you baptized? Oh, just baptized by a local elder? Oh, I was baptized by Paul. My baptism is more significant. Yes, he, he touched right here. He put me down, and that's right. I don't wash this. I don't wash the back of my neck. So, I mean, that's the, that's the thought here. Paul said, I, as I remember, uh, just Crispus and Gaius, and he said, and so that no one would say to you, you were baptized in my name. So you don't exalt me. 
Now, he remembers in verse 16 that there was somebody else he baptized. He said, now, I I did baptize also the household of Stephanus because that, beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. So as Paul's thinking, it comes to his mind, there was the household of Stephen. He baptized him, but he said, "I, I can't really remember anybody else. That's all I can remember. But here's the crux of it, folks. Verse 17, for Christ, this is why it's not important who Paul baptized, For Christ did not send me to baptize. Let's stop there. If the gospel involved baptism, Paul would never say that. If baptism was necessary for our our salvation, Paul would never say Christ didn't send me to baptize. It's not part of the gospel. He said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. And what? Preach the gospel. Notice Paul makes a distinction between the gospel and baptism. Baptism is the first step of obedience after someone is saved. It is a public confession of faith in Christ. It does not get one saved. It would be works. We don't work for our salvation. We trust the finished work of Christ. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. He said, I just preach the gospel. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul said in in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And and baptism would be part of that work. So we know that, that proxy baptism is not what he's talking about because nobody is saved by being baptized, not a living person and certainly not a dead person. The third reason we know that the Mormon doctrine of proxy baptism, which they say is based on 1 Corinthians 15, 29, is not at all what it's talking about because after death, there is no second chance. There is no second chance. The writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. He didn't say after this baptism, after this, the judgment. There's no purgatory, There's no people floating around waiting for the living to be baptized in their name. It's judgment. That's why Jesus often said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Meaning there's a finality there. There's no second chance. So we know that Paul is not teaching what Mormon doctrine says based on this verse. Then what what does the verse mean? Well, the interpretation, having looked at many, that I'm going to give you this morning, to, in my judgment, it is the best interpretation of this verse. I think it fits the context, and that often determines the meaning. In fact, it, it, it is determinative of the meaning. Secondly, it does not contradict what I'm going to tell you. Even if this is not what Paul intended here, I believe it is what Paul intended here, it certainly is consistent with truth found in other scriptures and it does not contradict any other scripture. So what is Paul referring to here? Paul's referring to people who came to Christ, they were converted and then baptized because of the testimony of Christians who had since died. In other words, what he's saying is that there are people who are converted in your own congregation, Corinthians, because they looked at the way a Christian faced death with triumph and peace in his heart, 
and victory without any fear. And they said, if that's the way this, the reality of this person's life is because of Christ, I want to know him too because I have no certainty about death. The fear of death is something we all share to some degree. But when it comes right down to the moment of departure, the fully devoted Christ follower sees death not as the coming of darkness, but as the extinguishing of a candle because the dawn has come. That kind of witness may just be the most powerful testimony we can give to the lost people who surround us. Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue this brief series of lessons about the practical implications of the resurrection when he joins us again on the next Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you're in the area and would like to visit us, Lakeside is located at 1893 Sunset Point Road. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry. To find out how you can help keep these Bible classes on the air, visit our website, www.versebyverseradio.org, or you can call 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714. While you're at the website, check out the archives page. That's where we have a large collection of previous broadcasts.